Serenissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair, and beauty source, and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today at www.arganissima.com. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our... Hello, folks, uh, and welcome back to the iHealth channel, iHealth Radio, a new day, a new show uh, with a, uh, a provider, uh, MD, uh, someone that's going to take us through the uh, tradition of family practice and, and, and really just primary care. Uh, so, so it is going to be a standard, you know, show today with uh, with the, the real basics of healthcare, uh, because again, we have different shows and we talk about different items, but really the concept of talking directly about what what's important, which is you know our health and how to maintain it physically, uh, it is important. But you know, having a doctor that does that for 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 specialty and a practice is important to to get back to basics. So so with me today, I have uh, Suridat Venkat. He is a primary care physician uh, from Rhode Island, and uh, he runs a practice. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about you know the concept of primary care in general, the importance of in, in, in preventative care, uh, the burnout, and a lot of the stuff that you as a, an audience and a listener and viewer right now can uh, really benefit from. Uh, I do, uh, you know, uh, want to, you know, tell everyone that it's going to be uh, a topic about your health and your family's health. So it's really, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive uh, play to, to listen to and, and really absorb uh, the information that we're going to get. So first things first, uh, doctor, welcome uh, to the show. Welcome uh, on the set and thank you for the opportunity to be with us and, she, you know, the ability and willingness to share in your uh, insights and, uh, and, and really the, the good stuff that we're going to share with our pe uh, people right now. Thank you for thank you for having me, Harry Kinich. Uh, yeah, it's exciting to be on this podcast. Well, well, thank you, thank you. It, it, we have actually tried to do this, you know, uh, <laughs> over the last few months, and you know, with with scheduling, it's been a little difficult. So I'm glad we made it. And yeah, and, me too. And, yeah. Well, listen, we we are here today, and we're gonna do it. But so so the first question is, you know, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of uh, a background about you, your practice, your your literally your story in terms of your history of, of how you know you got into obviously you got into the medicine and why primary care specifically and not maybe some other specialty and things like that. Sure. Uh, hello everyone. My name is Suri Venkat. Um, I'm a family physician with fellowship training in geriatric medicine. I've been practicing medicine for almost 20 years now. I've worked in many different roles. I've um, been in academics. I've served as an assistant professor at the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Massachusetts. I've worked as a primary care physician and a geriatrician at a community health center in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And I've also worked in a large group practice setting um, in the central Massachusetts area. Now I have my own private practice in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So I've been doing this for a while, and really there are several things that inspired me to become a doctor. I always wanted to be of service to others in a meaningful way and to make a positive impact in their lives. 
you know, the idea of being part of a profession focused on serving others, regardless of their backgrounds and circumstances, focused on facilitating um, people to lead healthier and therefore happier lives is what truly appealed to me about becoming a doctor. And I love being a family physician. I like the variety in family medicine. I like the biopsychosocial and holistic approach to patient care. Enjoy taking care of patients of all ages, from newborns to elderly. In addition to diagnosing and treating acute illnesses, um, I like the fact that you know I, I can provide preventative care, routine checkups, health risk assessments, immunizations, talk about screening tests, and personalized counseling on uh, you know maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Also love managing chronic diseases and coordinating care with other subspecialists. Um, basically, the goal of doing all of this is to help our patients effectively navigate a very complex healthcare system. Wow, <laughs> that, that that's a that's a. It sounded like a small, you know, summary of, of a lot of the stuff <laughs> that, that you do, and and it is. But but you know, frankly, it's a lot of stuff in there. In that particular minute, you covered a lot of grounds. And, and, you know, I want to just kind of break it down a little bit. So, so first of all, family practice, I mean, you said it, you know, it's from all ages and uh, which by the way, uh, for our audiences, and I think to clarify, it, it is, it is not always the same to treat as someone that at a young age versus someone that is an older person, right. Or, or in, in right. The, you know, at, at, and uh, maybe an older, uh, I guess, age bracket right mm -hmm. and 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 so so it for you it's a, it's a very very diversified group that you have to to handle different uh, age groups come with different i guess uh, diseases or illnesses uh, and so so you maintain all that through your practice and uh, but 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 when you started i mean i'm assuming it's it's all started it's all one i mean you're a family practitioner you're a family practitioner from the get go mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't mind can you just define the actual age group where it starts i mean uh, pediatrics are part of that as well or or you have an age you know uh start point so the beauty of family medicine is that uh it allows uh, the specialty uh focuses on holistic care for patients of all age groups mm. unlike internal medicine or pediatrics you know we're not truly restricted by age so the youngest patient i see in the office is like a newborn patient that comes on like day two or day three after they're born from you know, like a hospital, they typically come to establish care with me and they keep coming for their ongoing preventative exams. You know, they, they see me for their physicals, they see me for their immunizations and so forth. And as they grow into kids and adolescents and adults, you know, I see like I cover the whole spectrum, which is really the beauty of it. And, you know, so there's um, continuity of care, which is like crucial piece of family medicine, meaning I get to see them from the time they're born, you know, until they become adults and elderly, if, if I'm alive, <laughs> you know, I, I get to see them and I get to appreciate all the different milestones in their lives. And, you know, uh, you're able to connect uh, at a deeper level with patients and uh, they appreciate the continuity they get over years, which adds meaning to the medical care that they receive. Because, you know, if primary care is done right, patients, you know, really enjoy coming to the provider uh, office and talking to them about not just their medical care, but also about other things as well. And that continuity is really uh, what keeps it going and what keeps us going, you know, which is really the beautiful component of family medicine. Uh, unlike some other specialties which are restricted by age, 
you know, pediatrics, you know, some practices, uh, they only go until like 18 or 21. Internal medicine, they focus mostly on adults, 21 and older. But family medicine, there's, there's no age restriction as such. You know, we see patients of all ages. Well, thank you, Doc. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you, you're talking about you seeing, you know, patients from the birth and, and you go through them through their age groups. And in 20 years, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've seen a lot of folks grow healthy and you help them stay there. And, and, and just I wanted to just, uh, if you don't mind, define for us the actual uh, primary care piece of it. Uh, because sure. I know there's a lot to it. And, and, and I think just to clarify for everybody, what is really the importance of primary care, you know, uh, from the beginning that you start with somebody with a, with a patient to whatever, you know, they, for as long as they stay with you? Sure. Uh, so primary care, in a nutshell, primary care is the provision of integrated, accessible healthcare services by physicians and their healthcare teams who are accountable for addressing a large majority of personal healthcare needs developing a sustained partnership with patients and practicing in the context of families and communities. Okay, the care is uh, patient-centered, team-based, community-aligned, and designed to achieve better health outcomes, and at the same time, lower costs for the healthcare system, okay? And uh, primary care includes many different components such as health promotion, disease prevention, health maintenance, counseling, patient education, diagnosis and treatment of acute and chronic illnesses in a variety of healthcare settings. It's not just restricted to office, you know, it's also inpatient, uh, sometimes in critical care settings, long-term care, schools, you know, and home care agencies and so forth, okay? And primary care is performed and managed by typically a personal physician or a general practitioner like myself, who often collaborates with other health professionals and utilizes consultation or referral as appropriate, okay? And primary care provides patient advocacy in the healthcare system to accomplish cost-effective and equitable care by coordination of healthcare services. And primary care promotes effective communication with patients, which is very important, okay? And and not only with patients, but also with their families to encourage them to be a partner in healthcare. All right, so it's the patient's entry point into the healthcare system. And as the continuing, as the continuing focal point for all needed healthcare services going forward. All right. And primary care uh, provide um, patients with ready access to their own personal physician and healthcare teams. It includes care that is uh, person and family oriented, continuous, comprehensive, equitable, team-based, collaborative, integrated, and care that is of high value. I I have to say, you know, that is the most defined <laughs> definition. <laughs> you know, I, I'm clear. Is it too complicated? <laughs> no. I, I, well, actually, I I you know, it's funny because when, when you hear primary, you you probably can think about a couple words, but you know, the way I broke it down, it's a lot more of a <laughs> multiple stages here and multiple activities going on in, in one in, in one concept, which is which is a great thing. That's why exactly why I asked the question because I think you know sometimes we don't understand the the depth of of what primary care is. And uh, you just, you know, terrifically here, <laughs> you know, give us a very, very uh, comprehensive breakdown of Thank it. And, and, and you're right. I mean, uh, for me, I, I'm actually in the insurance space. So we're on the payer side. 
uh, that on my regular job. <laughs> and yeah. and we, we, we're we an HMO. I mean, I've been in the HMO uh-huh. world for, for 27 years. And so obviously we work with primary care doctors, you know, as, 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 a, as a core business, because really they're, they're our backbone. And, you know, as an HMO, you have to have a primary care physician, you know, that, that, that treats your patients and, and in our case, mm-hmm. our members. And, and one thing that we always, you know, really stress in, in discussions when we are talking to our uh, potential prospects and members is, is really the importance of, of primary care physicians, the selection, uh, and also the importance of preventative care with them, because it's all about preventative you know, care. It's all about you having someone that is, that is taking care of your health throughout your life and making sure that they understand all your needs. And, and sometimes uh, people tend to probably don't go see a doctor uh, until they're sick. Uh, and that, that's, that's a practice that is completely wrong, as, as you know. Right, right. And, and, and that's really what we want to you know, talk today about, you know, the, the importance of not doing that. Because a lot of folks may just like, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm good. I don't have to just see a doctor. Why do I need a doctor? When mm-hmm. I'm sick, I'm going to go to the ER. And actually, that's what's been happening over the years where people just wind up at the ER because it's a last minute, you know, uh, things. And it just happens at night and usually on weekends. Uh, and then you get a, a, I don't know, it could be just a cold and someone wind up at the ER because they don't know what to do. And because they don't have a relationship with a doctor, it, it, it's a problem because they don't even have someone to go to or someone that's actually, they can pick up the phone and call. And right. so, so the idea of or introducing the primary care concept to someone is, is, is almost vital for, for you as, as a person. And everybody is watching and listening. You have to have the concept of having your doctor, someone that knows you. Ideally from birth, if that's possible, but it doesn't matter any given age. Right. You, know, you still need to, even if you haven't started, it's time for you to pick one and, and build a relationship because they'll, you as a pri- primary care doctor, you, do, you assess the, the health needs of a person at any given time. And then you determine a course of, of, of I guess, uh, action with them. So, so let's talk about that, that concept, the, the preventative versus the emergency and, and that course of action, that things that you put in place to prevent someone from even, you know, winding up in, in some chronic disease or winding up in the ER for, for, for that matter. Right. So uh, you hit the nail in the head. So preventative care is such an important component, you know, and, you know, it's very vital for all patients to have a good primary care teams in place, because really primary care providers uh, or primary care practice in general, it's like quarterbacks, you know, like in a football game, because they're coordinating everything for patients in the background. And really, there's a lot of value based care that happens with primary care that people don't appreciate as much. And a lot of them end up going to emergency rooms if they don't have primary care. And it's seeing doctor whoever who doesn't know anything about you know, their medical histories or underlying problems and so forth. So they cannot provide care in the context of what's happening you know, in their lives. And unfortunately, it's just a piecemeal approach which is not cost-effective in the long-term. You know? So in terms of defining preventative care, So preventative care is basically medical care that's provided to keep people healthy. The main focus is to keep people healthy and avoid or delay illnesses and effectively manage health conditions to prevent negative outcomes or to prevent complications for patients in general. That's like the broad umbrella term, broad umbrella definition of preventative care. Now in preventative care, there are many, many different aspects or components. Okay, so wellness visits, that's huge. Routine annual physical exams, uh, that is something we really emphasize on. 
Then there's screening tests, depending on age, gender, there are certain screening tests that are recommended at different stages in our lives. And I'll go over a little bit um, about screening tests. Mm-hmm. Immunizations, that's something we like to talk to our patients about when they come in for their annual physicals or even for their follow-up appointments. You know, We emphasize the importance of immunization practices. And of course, counseling, you know, um, no matter what the problem, you know, we emphasize a lot on counseling. It could be something as simple as um, health promotion, um, tobacco cessation, you know, adopting healthy behaviors, regular exercise and whatnot. Counseling plays a very important role to achieve better outcomes for patients in general. Now, when we talk about disease prevention, okay, there are four main components of, you know, uh, prevention. Primary prevention is basically intervening before disease occurs, you know, before anything bad happens, you know, proactively uh, doing something to intervene or to prevent a disease or illness is what we call primary prevention. Okay. I can give you some examples for primary prevention, vaccinations, you know, play a crucial role. You know, we are vaccinating someone with the intention of preventing a disease, thereby preventing a negative outcome. So that that's basically a, a classical example for primary prevention. All right. And altering risky behaviors, for example, counseling regarding tobacco or alcohol use or drug use to prevent a negative outcome, you know, to prevent heart disease or hypertension that stems from tobacco use or alcohol use, you know, that that thereby we can prevent a negative outcome. So that those are some classical examples for primary prevention. Okay. So secondary prevention is basically screening to identify diseases in the earliest of stages before the disease progresses, before signs and symptoms of the disease starts. Okay, Uh, some examples I can give you are checking blood pressure readings on patients when they come in, diagnosing hypertension early on, starting them on treatment before the problem gets worse, or checking blood sugars, checking cholesterol numbers, you know, when they come in. Uh, if, if they meet criteria for screening, okay, and the intention is, of course, to identify the problem very early on and managing it effectively, thereby we can prevent, you know, uh, the pro- those problems from causing more signs or symptoms later on, okay. Then there's an entity called tertiary prevention. Tertiary, tertiary prevention refers to managing diseases post-diagnosis. For example, if someone is already diagnosed with a condition, right, So we try to effectively manage the disease, thereby we prevent complications from that particular disease, and we can slow down the progression of the disease. That's the primary purpose of uh, tertiary prevention. Some examples I can give you um, are, you know, suppose someone suffers from a stroke, okay, and they have paralysis, say, you know, they're, they're not able to walk, right? So we can start them on physical therapy, occupational therapy. If they have any swallowing problems, we can put them on switch and swallow therapy, um, things like that. And the goal of doing that is to prevent more uh, morbidity from the stroke or preventing complications from stroke and enabling them to be more functional in their own setups. All right. So that, that, that's a good example for tertiary prevention. Another one is, say, for example, you have a diabetic patient, right? Mm-hmm. You want to tightly control their blood sugar readings and tightly control diabetes so that we can prevent complications from diabetes, such as kidney disease, which we call nephropathy or, you know, vision problems, which, you know, which can happen from diabetic retinopathy 
or we can uh, prevent damage to the nerves, which we call neuropathy. You know, the, so these are some examples for tertiary prevention. Basically, we're trying to prevent complications from the underlying disease process. And there's a relatively newer entity in prevention, which we call quaternary prevention, okay? So which is basically actions taken by providers to protect individuals, you know, to protect patients from medical interventions that are likely to cause more harm than good, okay? Some examples I can give you are refraining from um, recommending medications that are not adequately assessed in large randomized trials, you know, treatments that are not evidence-based, right? So if I recommend those kind of treatment options to patients, it's not backed by evidence and I may end up doing more harm than good, you know, by doing that, right? So obviously we want to provide good quality, like, you know, good evidence-based medicine to patients, thereby we can prevent negative outcomes. And steering patients in that direction, you know, counseling them, educating them about evidence-based treatment options or guidelines is really one of the main responsibilities of primary care teams, okay? And I, I you know, want to strongly emphasize on quaternary, quaternary prevention because that, that's our window of opportunity to you know, do the right thing for patients and recommend treatments that work and that are evidence-based, all right? So in terms of, um, you know, preventative care, a big component of preventative care is screening, okay? Screening, um, as most people know, is, you know, trying to detect something early on proactively before something negative happens, all right? And there are many different types of screens, you know, we screen for cancers, we screen for high cholesterol, we screen for high blood pressure, you know, we screen for vision problems in kids. Mm -hmm. uh, we screen for osteoporosis, you know, in elderly women, we screen for obesity, you know, we screen for STDs in patients of certain age groups. Mm -hmm. um, we screen for coronary artery disease if patients meet certain criteria. You know, when it comes to cancer screening, uh, you know, a lot of the screening recommendations, they come from, um, you know, the ones we use in primary care, they're primarily from the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which we call USPSTF. They release guidelines, uh, they publish guidelines, uh, which are based on strength of evidence, based on large randomized trials, or, you know, based on treatments that have been used so far, and, um, you know, based on outcomes data, they take into consideration many different components before they publish these guidelines and we follow them you know when it comes to screening say for breast cancer or you know cervical cancer colorectal cancer skin cancer etc you know whatever type of cancer it may be you know it's the guidelines actually um, are evidence-based and you know we we follow them and if done right we can prevent negative outcomes. We can detect cancers early on before they start causing complications for patients. And we can improve uh, outcomes for patients. We can you know, decrease mortality. We can decrease morbidity for patients. So it's, it's meaningful you know, at the end of the day for patients uh, as well as providers you know, to cause good outcomes and thereby provide uh, well-coordinated and cost-effective care for the whole system. Well, doctor, thank you for, for I, I was just literally immersed in, in all the breakdown of, of the categories here. And, and, and it's, it's a lot of work that, you know, when we just glance on the, 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 the name of, of primary care or PCP or, or just a physician, 
we don't really look into it as deep as 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 you broke it down right now. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff that goes in. And uh, for for our audiences, I mean, this is exactly what we need to hear. Like, what would be the benefit from having your primary care, and what are the things that you know we should be looking at to work with our primary care doctors uh, uh, for and about. And so so it is important, really. Uh, to just and take a, a deep breath here and just listen and, and then just absorb all these these functions that the doctors will actually uh, uh, apply and 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 do. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to 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 ask for is you mentioned the the annual checkups or the wellness visits, mm-hmm. which will be part of the assessments and and at least the monitoring, right? And right. and 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 so so how frequently? I mean, I know there's different things that, that have to be assessed different times and mm-hmm. some, some require more frequency than others. What would you tell us about those? So uh, annual physical exams, you know, when it comes to like wellness visits or physical exams in general, you know, it is age specific. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for pediatric patients, the recommendations are slightly different depending on the age. Okay. And for elderly, it's typically annual Now, for kids, um, you know, we like to see them, like I was telling you, we like to see them right after birth, like typically uh, day two or three after birth. Uh, And then we like to see them at um, one month just to make sure they're gaining weight appropriately. And then we see them at two months, four months and six months, and then nine and 12 months and 15, 18 months. And then at age two, 24 months, right? So after two, you know, we see them at two and a half and three, then after three, it's typically once a year, you know, typically after three years of age, physical exams are typically done once a year. And, um, and there's a reason for that, you know, we want to, you know, make sure they're gaining um, height and weight appropriately, they're meeting all of their developmental milestones, you know, they're developing, you know, the language skills are developing, you know, their motor skills are developing, their sensory skills are developing, you know, so if you want to make sure they're meeting all of these, what we call developmental milestones, you know, in an appropriate manner. And as they grow into like younger kids and, you know, adolescents, you know, typically we see them once a year, we want to make sure that, again, the growth is happening and it gives us an opportunity to screen for obesity. We counsel them regarding, um, you know, good practices, regular activity, good dietary habits, you know, uh, things like that. Um, and then as they become adults, it's typically once a year. Okay. And during these annual physical exams, we not only talk about vaccinations, we talk about you know, health promotion, we counsel them, uh, you know, regarding healthy habits, and we order um, lab tests as appropriate, depending on the age. Okay, sometimes we have to order screening for diabetes, we have to order cholesterol panels, we have to order blood sugars, you know, to screen for diabetes. And, you know, sometimes we have to check their lead or CBC to see if kids are getting exposed to lead, because that can affect their neurological development. Okay, and for um, say women 21 and older, they may need to undergo pap smears to screen for cervical cancer, right? And for patients who are 50 and older, now it's actually 45, 45 and older, you know, we have to talk about colorectal cancer screening. You know, if they have any underlying family histories, the recommendations are somewhat different, okay? And women 50 and older, we have to talk about mammograms to screen for breast cancers. Right. And so there, there are all these different components of, um, you know, screening that we have to discuss 
and it has to be tailored um, based on the age and underlying family histories and comorbidities of patients. Um, so it can be quite complex, but it has to be uh, tailored to the patient's age and underlying problems. Thank you, doctor. And and so so just I want to link this to to the next level where mm-hmm. the role of primary uh, post post uh, hospitalization, for example, someone mm-hmm. you know for whatever reason goes to the hospital and then then they get discharged. The the primary care doctor's role is is a key at this point to to do a, a set of things to help them, I guess, regain their regular life or at least you know maintain you know whatever they need to maintain. What can you tell us about that? Sure, that that I'm glad you brought that point up because it's it's a very important component of primary care doing follow-up visits after say they go to the emergency room or if they get admitted and they you know are taken care of in the hospital and subsequently they get discharged so there's a lot of care coordination that needs to happen you know from the primary care team so first of all we need to see what exactly was done in the ER what imaging tests or lab tests were done in the ER which means reviewing those medical records um, you know when the patient is in the office or even before, is really important to come up with a good treatment plan for patients. You know, suppose they go to the ER and they come back to see me or, you know, they get admitted. Now we need to see who were some of the specialists involved with their care when they were admitted to a hospital, right? And what their recommendations were. For example, if I have a patient that gets admitted, say for uh, chest pain and, you know, they're trying to rule out a heart attack or if they have heart failure, they get admitted and they get treated in the hospital. So obviously I need to know what the cardiologist in the hospital recommended and what tests they did in the hospital. You know, did they do a stress test? Did they do any blood work? You know, did they do an EKG? And uh, so what happened to the patient, you know, ultimately and what the recommendations were from the cardiologist, say for follow-up and, you know, that I need to follow. And also requires coordinating with the cardiologist's office to make sure that, you know, all the nuts and bolts are in place. Like, does this patient have, have an appointment to see the cardiologist? Do they have an appointment for a stress test if it needs to be done as an outpatient? Things like that, you know, and this is just an example, you know, so a lot of care coordination happens behind the scenes that patients sometimes don't realize. So our office staff is calling, you know, the specialist offices in the meantime and trying to get records from them. Or if it's electronic medical record, we try to integrate with the hospital systems and try to download information or data and discuss with patients. And also uh, arranging for follow-ups is very important. You know, it could be something as simple as, as a follow-up exam with me or with the specialist. Not everybody needs to follow up with the specialist after they get discharged, you know, say if they have an infection, if they have pneumonia, right? They get treated with antibiotics in the hospital. They get discharged, they come back to see me and I see them, they're done with the treatment. If they're feeling better, pretty much that's the end of it, you know? And we just wanna make sure, and if if it's a smoker, my job is to not only make sure they, you know, take the antibiotics as recommended, for optimal treatment of pneumonia, it's also my job to counsel on smoking cessation. Thereby, we want to prevent, you know, anything negative happening going forward, you know, so things like that. So we do a little bit of counseling, we do care coordination, when they come in, we review their medication lists, because often when they get admitted to a hospital, the medications 
can be changed. You know, they get started on different or new medications. So it's my job to do a thorough med reconciliation. You know, I look at their med list and see if it matches with what they were taking previously or not. And it's my job to update our medication list in our EMR systems. That way there's no confusion because if somebody else, if a staff member is looking at their chart, we wanna make sure that we have the right list of medications. You know, that way uh, there's no confusion across the board. And even if they go see a specialist in the same system, right? And if they access the same EMR system, uh, so at least they will also know what medications this patient is on because if they have to start a new medication, they have to look for any drug-drug interactions and so forth. So overall, it helps with care coordination if you know the primary care system functions optimally and does good care coordination with um, you know specialists as well as patients. Thank you, doctor, for clarifying. And, and, and that's pretty actually thorough and comprehensive <laughs> explanation you've given us there. But, but I wanted to just touch base on something that, that rela relates to the same topic of care coordination, but now with health plans and insurers and, and, and managed care in general, because uh, their, their mission, I mean, is typically, you know, provide obviously the insurance and, and, and the, the cost payout, whatever for the, the care. But also there's a lot of work that gets done between the primaries uh, and, and the care coordinator teams on health plans, on the health plan side. So, so I know there's a lot of work that gets done on that side as well, because ultimately the insurance companies, they do have you know, plans and programs for their patients or their members, and then they have to work with the primary care doctors to kind of coordinate some of these, these activities. Some plans have programs, you know, for diabetes, for uh, cancer treatments, for smoking cessation and all this stuff. And uh, also like post-discharge, things like that. So the same thing that we discussed, but now you have also a third party involved in that process. And the reason I'm asking this question, because I know that ties into earlier mentioned something about cost in healthcare and preventative, you know, uh, medicine does help, you know, reduce the cost of healthcare in general. And now we're talking about cost and payout and payers and, and money mm. and insurance. So, so, so let's talk about that component from your, as I know it's not easy because I know there's, there's a huge uh, effort that goes between the two parties to actually make sure that the data is correct. Everybody has the information uh, it's available. Uh, it's properly coded and all the stuff, even claims wise, you know, things like that, because also there's in, for example, the government programs, there is all these, things that, you know, they're subsidized by, by the government. So they need to actually properly produce all the data and some plans have stars ratings and things like that. So, so how do you kind of coordinate all that, you know, with the health plans and the insurers, whether they're, they're private insurers or government pro uh, programs? So uh, the insurance part of it is, is also quite complex, you know, uh, just to keep it, you know, simple for our, our listeners. You know, um, there are many different types of, uh, you know, insurance plans that are offered, you know, from Medicaid programs to Medicare to private payers, you know, um, to whatnot, like, you know, the, the, the recommendations are different, the reimbursement rates are different, the requirements are different, you know, it's quite complex, the whole world of insurance. And, you know, often prior authorizations are needed, you know, for certain tests and procedures uh, that may be quite complex. And medications, just to get certain medications approved, we have to fill prior authorizations and facts to insurance companies to get the green signal from them to get a medication X or Y approved. You know, there are many different uh, moving parts to this. Now, in, when it comes to primary care, 
Overall, there's a lot of emphasis right now on value-based models, value-based systems, you know, where they're basically large, you know, uh, healthcare organizations that are operating. Um, and, you know, there are many smaller practices that are under like ACOs, you know, we call them accountable care organizations or, you know, HMOs or whatnot. And the goal of having these models is to um, make care cost-effective and evidence-based, you know, and not only that, the ultimate goal is to provide better outcomes for patients. We want to make sure patients are healthy and uh, we prevent diseases from getting worse or, you know, from complications from happening. Ultimately, it's, it's a win-win for patients as well as providers to keep it cost-effective and to promote uh, positive outcomes. So there's a shift overall uh, towards value-based systems and value-based systems are basically where, you know, insurance companies closely co collaborate with these um, ACOs or large healthcare systems and they hold them accountable, you know, for the quality of care that's provided, you know? So it's basically, um, you know, how much money is spent on screening tests, how many, you know, what is spent on uh, healthcare maintenance, lab tests and so forth, you know, is it truly evidence-based? Was it truly necessary? You know, uh, things like that. Those are, those are some things that are looked, um, you know, under the microscope and if it's a value-based system. And ultimately the goal is to make sure that patients receive optimal care. Now, um, it, is, it is a broad topic, you know. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of ground to cover with that. But just in a nutshell, you know, we need to provide care that is evidence-based, that is cost-effective, um, with good care coordination, and uh, avoid ordering unnecessary tests and procedures, um, you know, that are not evidence-based. Um, with the main focus of keeping patients healthy, you know, to, to put it in simple language. Oh, well, listen, that is that is the the pure mission of preventative, as we said, and and you know, it's it starts with the patient and and the, the people's health, and uh, and then obviously preventing them from you know getting any bad bad outcomes, as you said, as well as also saving the cost and and reducing the cost. And, and I think you've covered a lot of that because the fact is, if these people do exactly, you know, the, the patients in general and, and listeners and viewers and all of us as consumers and, and just humans, if we were to, to really take this serious and take our preventative and, and, and primary care serious, I think we would actually uh, probably have, you know, uh, a healthier, you know, lifestyle, a healthier, and we're going to talk about lifestyles in a second, a healthier life uh, with less complications. And if there are complications, we are able to mitigate them uh, early on, or at least, you know, prevent some of it to get, you know, from getting worse. And, and, and it's so, so your role is really, really critical. I mean, it's, it's, it's as vital as it comes in, in, in everybody's life. And I think that's the emphasis that we want. I want to just as a message today that, you know, we want to focus on, on primary. That is your goal. Now, again, uh, specialty care and all the other subspecialties are just as important because people do tend to have uh, different illnesses and they do need these, you know, extra, you know, folks to, to help, you know, with the care and, and treatment with the coordination with primary care physicians and primary care teams. So, so again, I just wanted to thank you for, first of all, you know, really breaking this down to the science that there is and the system as it is and, and just clarifying, you know, for our audiences. But also, like, again, for people just know that this is something that you want to be aware of. 
and you should be, you know, really involved in it. It's your care at the end of the day uh, or your loved ones. And so that is important. So, so you mentioned, doctor, something earlier about, you know, the, uh, we talked about briefly about drugs and, and, and adherence and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always the question, you know, uh, that, you know, well, there's not, not a question. There's this, this perception that when you go to doctors, typically there is medicine that is prescribed. Is that always necessary? That's an excellent point. So not always um, do we need to prescribe a medication for a problem. This it, treatment is not always a pill for a problem. You know, people need to understand that. Um, you know, uh, the goal ultimately is to do what's evidence-based uh, for patients and uh, avoid causing any harm. That's one of the main things, you know, we emphasize in medicine in general, be it preventative, be it primary care or specialty care. You know, we want to do what's right for patients, what's evidence-based and avoid uh, ordering unnecessary tests and procedures and prescribing medications that are of no value or no, you know, if, if they're truly not evidence-based, we should, you know, steer patients uh, in the direction of what, you know, what's, what's right and what's meaningful, you know, for their medical care. Now, a lot of patients, you know, when they come in, say, you know, I can give you an example. If it's an obese patient, say with uh, um, borderline high blood pressure reading, say it's prehypertension, we call it prehypertension, you know, when their blood pressure is not high enough for us to call it high blood pressure. But, you know, if it's not normal at the same time, it's kind of in between, we call it prehypertension, right? So uh, just by counseling them regarding good eating habits, regular exercise, uh, cutting back on salt intake in their diet, you know, we can, you know, this is not necessarily a pill that I'm prescribing for this patient, you know, it's just making these recommendations, counseling them about, you know, good practices uh, that itself can create a, a good positive outcome for the patient, you know? They, they may lose a lot of weight and the blood pressure readings may normalize and, you know, they may lose the weight and we can prevent heart disease. So that's our opportunity here, you know, to cause a positive outcome. I can give you another example. Say if someone has slightly elevated blood, blood sugar readings or if they have like slightly elevated cholesterol numbers, you know, so we don't necessarily need to treat them with a statin or with a you know, a diabetes medication in general, you know, just by promoting, you know, healthy eating habits and regular exercise, we can uh, modify uh, the, these particular problems and we can uh, treat their pre-diabetes or, you know, pre-hypertension or slightly elevated cholesterol numbers, you know. Uh, but of course, if you, if you have someone with um, full-blown diabetes, you know, or if they have like hypertension, obviously they need to be treated with the right medications, with the intention of preventing complications and to reduce the risk for heart disease. And with with screening tests as well, you know, we want to capture those patients who may have like precancerous changes and act on it, you know, uh, that way we can prevent a cancer from happening. Or if they have a cancer, it's, you know, by doing the necessary tests, we can identify the problem and prevent it from getting worse as time goes on by, you know, referring them to the right specialists if need be. So bottom line is it's not always a pill for a problem. You know, the, the approach needs to be holistic The approach needs to be uh, based on their underlying comorbidities and problems and their lifestyles and their other habits. So focusing on those can, you know, 
treat a lot of medical problems without necessarily having to take medications. Thank you, doctor. And and in, in the subject of medication, I know there's skeptics and, and some folks, you know, sometimes they they always well, there's this this whole potential perception that doctors push certain medications because of the relationship with pharma and things like that. If if it's okay, if you have a good way to explain to people right now that that is not the case and that the doctors have their own way of evaluating those medications and how they prescribe them to, to the patient, I think that can ease up a lot of minds. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I know that's the general notion, but <laughs> trust me, <laughs> we are, you know, uh, we do get information from pharmaceutical companies, but uh, we are not obligated to prescribe those medications. You know, as physicians, it's our job to know which medications work for which problems, uh, which medications are recommended based on scientific evidence, you know, based on medical evidence. You know, these medications, before they get released into the market, you know, they are tested in large, what we call randomized clinical trials. You know, these medications go through rigorous testing, you know, on animals and then, you know, small human populations and large, you know, um, human populations and so forth. If it's deemed safe and effective based on data from all of those trials, that's when uh, the FDA, you know, will, will approve it and it gets released into the market. And of course, uh, it's our job to know what the adverse effects are and drug-drug interactions are and what kind of negative things those medications can cause. So it's important to kind of stay up to date and know what new medications are in the pipeline and what kind of problems um, or benefits, you know, that they, they cause. And it's really picking the right medication for our patients that provides the best outcome and that's evidence-based because we want to go by scientific data and not based on you know, uh, a pharmaceutical rep that is trying to push. <laughs> so it's our, our responsibility, a collective responsibility as physicians to, you know, uh, prescribe the right medications based on the evidence and not just go by, you know, what, what a pharmaceutical rep is trying to convey here. So again, I, I, I want to reassure our, our listeners here that the approach is precisely that. And, you know, we are not uh, at least you know, I can speak collectively for most of my primary care physician colleagues and specialty colleagues as well that, you know, we want to do what's right for our patients and what's truly evidence-based, um, which is a big responsibility. <laughs> well, it is. Well, again, I mean, at the end of the day, if there is any adverse reaction, I mean, it comes back to you and then, you know, it's, uh, well, you know, there's always the skeptics and the theories that, you know, we got to keep the patients, you know, the, the people not as healthy because then it's good for business. I mean, you have the, that extreme vision. <laughs> there are some extreme thoughts out there that sometimes people can, can buy into, but right. uh, our objective today is really to clear some of that. I mean, really there is a, a noble picture here and there is more to this than, than what people may think. And maybe there are uh, odd cases here and there where that may be true, but, but that's not the general rule. And the general rule is that doctors are here to do the right thing and help people, again, uh, prevent, you know, uh, keep them healthy and prevent them from getting any, you know, illnesses and bad outcome in their health. That's right. Uh, so, so, so one uh, very, uh, I think, key question that I'd like to ask, uh, and I know we have a couple, you know, more, <laughs> and we're running out of time. But if you don't mind, bear with me. Sure. So, so one is uh, socioeconomics and, mm -hmm. and their impact on on access to care and primary care, specifically depending on 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 where. Uh, uh, folks are and their backgrounds, communities, and things like that. That could be, and we hear this in the news all the time. 
uh, equity in, in healthcare and access and so on and so forth. Uh, how does primary care kind of factor that in and, and how does it work from your aspect? So uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, you know, primary care is all the more important in my opinion, mm. because, you know, I've worked in a community health center in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. I've worked in a FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center. Mm. You know, I've taken care of patients uh, who have had no insurance or who are purely on Medicaid or state plans. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've actually taken care of those patients and I've seen the kind of positive impact, you know, that it causes good primary care systems uh, can, can, can cause on patients, you know, just by educating them. Some, a lot of them may not have good health literacy, you know, spending the time to educate them about good uh, practices, you know, changing their lifestyles and, um, you know, coordinating their screening tests and whatnot, you know, and in the health centers, you know, set up, they even have, patient assistance programs that help. They have, uh, pay for patients who have transportation problems, they even provide um, some resources, you know, for they, they have some vouchers and they had the, the vans that would bring patients in from, you know, certain locations and whatnot. I see a lot of value, you know, in that, in doing that, because we're trying to promote um, communities and well-being in those communities and preventing negative outcomes. And it has a ripple effect, you know, just by, you know, it's, it's patients talk to them, patients talk to their family members, patients talk to um, their, their neighbors, you know, and the word goes around. And, you know, um, if, if they get the right message from their providers, they're more, more likely to say positive things to their neighbors and family members, and it has a ripple effect. And they try to seek medical care if they hear from their own, you know, kith and kin, and, you know, that promotes more healthy behaviors. And I think overall, it's a win-win. And in my opinion, uh, the primary care should be focused even more on, you know, patients who have, who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, because there's, there's a, lot, a lot of value in doing that, in my opinion. And it, just by improving health literacy and providing the resources that they need, we can decrease unnecessary emergency room visits, because oftentimes these um, communities, they may not have a lot of primary care providers in those areas. And they rely on urgent care sometimes, or they go straight to the emergency room to seek medical care. And that is not cost-effective, really. I mean, uh, an ER-centric system is um, not cost-effective. And it, it's ultimately, it's not going to be successful because it's, it's a recipe for burnout. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, economically, it's, it's not feasible and, um, you know, it cannot be run successfully. So, you know, again, emphasizing primary care, you know, in those areas can also keep people away from emergency room, um, you know, uh, unless they absolutely need to go to the ERs. And we can make the care more cost effective and meaningful for patients. Well, doctor, you just alluded to, to my next question, and it's perfect segue, <laughs> which is the burnout. So, 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 so let's, let's talk about that. You know, what does that mean, burnout, in, in, in the context of preventative yeah. and, and, and healthcare? So burnout, burnout is it's huge. It's happening not only in primary care now, it's happening uh, in other specialties as well. Um, burnout, it, it, you know, in simple language, it's, it's basically a long-term stress reaction that, that is marked by emotional exhaustion, uh, 
depersonalization and a lack of sense of uh, personal accomplishment. And I can go over these components in, in, in more detail. So emotional exhaustion is basically a feeling of uh, physical and emotional depletion. You know, it's not just physical fatigue, it's also emotional fatigue that happens, you know, with uh, caregiving and go, trying to go above and beyond and trying to do the right thing for patients. You know, sometimes, you know, it, it can be exhausting. The whole endeavor can be quite exhausting. And depersonalization refers to like having a distant feeling toward patients that may lead to cynicism or sarcasm, which is also called uh, described as compassion fatigue, you know. And there's something called, um, you know, um, burnout. The other component is a low sense of personal accomplishment, which is basically a lack of efficacy or doubting the quality or meaning of your work as a physician. So like I was telling, burnout is happening not only in primary care, it's happening in a lot of uh, high stress environments like emergency rooms. I mean, since the pandemic started, I'm sure all of us uh, have had a better appreciation for our frontline workers, healthcare workers that are battling, you know, the pandemic uh, and the, the kind of stress they're going through on a day-to-day -day basis with ERs getting flooded with patients and no hospital beds available and ICUs and, you know, inpatient settings and whatnot. It's, it's basically a recipe for burnout. In fact, the burnout rate has increased tremendously since the pandemic started you know, as most people appreciate now. Now, uh, based on a uh, 2019 online survey done on family physicians, nearly 46% of them reported at least one symptom of burnout, be it emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, or a low sense of personal accomplishment. So you can imagine how prevalent the problem is among healthcare providers. It's not just doctors, it's also um, you know, other staff members involved, you know, and primary care team and specialty teams and also in hospitals. And I can imagine all those nurses trying to go above and beyond, you know, since the pandemic started and a lot of people are leaving. Unfortunately, they're, they're leaving healthcare because of the significant stress involved, you know, in taking care of these patients, which, which is sad. And our job is to recognize symptoms of burnout early on, uh, and try to educate providers about ways of mitigating burnout and uh, helping them adopt, you know, good, good strategies to better recognize burnout and uh, take care of themselves. That way they, they are able to develop more resiliency and get back into the healthcare workforce uh, and, you know, be there, be available to patients in this time of critical need for everybody. Wow. It is it is amazing, but you're right. I mean, the last few years, and it's been just known. It's it's been taxing, and uh, it, it it is. I mean, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've watched it on the news, and uh, I've seen it live. <laughs> I mean, I actually live it daily on on on, on the insurance side because even on our on our side, we are expect we're experiencing it big time, and uh, it is it is a fact. And uh, I hope that people can realize that, 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 that we need to do more uh, to help kind of reduce this burnout business. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so thank you for, for clarifying that. But so doctor, one, one key element, you mentioned something about the pandemic and, and all the stuff. And also, since we're talking on the topic of preventative and prevention, you know, I know there's, there's a, a hot topic at the hour, which is the vaccination <laughs> uh, against mm -hmm. COVID. 
And, right. and what is the importance that, you know, that we need to, that the message of importance that we would like to send to people? Because there's a lot of controversy about it and there, there are pros and cons and there are people pro it and, and against it and things like that. But what would be the message from a primary physician, you know, a, a, that, that, that really promotes preventative care uh, in terms of uh, the vaccination and the impact of it and, and how it's uh, potentially helping people stay healthier and, and, and preventing severe disease from COVID? So uh, as, as most of us appreciate, you know, the pandemic has taken a huge toll on uh, human lives, like not just in this country, but internationally, you know, globally, it has had a huge impact. The morbidity and mortality is something that has something like, unlike anything we've ever seen, you know, in, in the past. And it takes a huge toll on everybody. You know, it takes a toll on healthcare systems. It takes a toll on communities and families and even individual at the individual level as well, you know, with what we do, how we do things, you know, we are, you know, focusing everything on what best we can do to, you know, put an end to this pandemic and provide better outcomes for patients. And uh, it's it, the vaccines have played a crucial role in, decreasing the spread of COVID-19 in, you know, in communities. And uh, it's based on evidence. It's based on scientific evidence. Um, you know, these vaccines have been tested in large randomized trials on kids and adults. And we have good quality, reliable data that has come out of these large randomized trials. So the evidence is there. And you know, the vaccines, uh, you know, we've known about them, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna and the J&J, they've all been tested on thousands of patients. It's not just like, you know, a few hundreds that they've been tested on thousands and thousands of patients in large randomized trials. And so far, the evidence is, is really excellent that, it, it, you know, all these studies have shown that the vaccines are very, very effective in decreasing serious disease from COVID, you know. Uh, yes, they may not, you know, prevent the infection itself, uh, you know, does not mean that if someone gets the vaccine that they cannot catch the virus, of course they can, but uh, the vaccines are effective in preventing life-threatening or serious uh, infection, you know, from COVID-19 to the point that requires them to be hospitalized and be in intensive care units or need oxygen and things like that. So our goal is to keep people in their communities and keep them functional and decrease the burden on healthcare systems by making sure they get vaccinated. That way, you know, we decrease the stress on the healthcare systems, decrease the, the burden on hospitals and larger healthcare systems. Okay, and the vaccines have been shown to be very effective in doing that because most people uh, who are vaccinated, even if they uh, get exposed to the virus, like I was saying, that they, they don't become seriously ill. You know, they only have relatively milder symptoms, which get better within like a few days, may feel like a common cold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're able to recover from it uh, without necessarily developing complications that um, make them, you know, go to the hospital, you know, that that's ultimately the goal, you know. And the more and more people we get vaccinated in communities, uh, the sooner we can put an end to this pandemic. You know, ultimately, if um, say 75 to 80% of patients are vaccinated across communities, then um, the other 10 to 15% who cannot get vaccine for miscellaneous reasons, 
they will be better protected as well because the transmission rates will go down you know, in communities in general. And that is huge, you know, and instead of, uh, you know, depending on false information from social media and uh, negative messages that are going, you know, in social, on social media, patients really need to look at what's scientifically uh, recommended and the kind of evidence that comes from, um, you know, um, large studies and uh, reliable scientific sources, you know, patients really need to consider that. And uh, I and I I really want to promote vaccination practices, you know. So based on FDA recommendations, patients of five and older, you know, they qualify to get the boosters, and even you know that they they qualify for the Pfizer pediatric vaccine, you know. And I really want to promote um, vaccination, you know, because there's a lot of school-based transmission happening as well, you know. And we're seeing a record number of pediatric hospitalizations now. In our, it's our job and responsibility as uh, medical providers to uh, promote the message and encourage uh, parents to get their children vaccinated and themselves vaccinated. Now, if we can decrease school-based transmissions, we can make sure there's no disruption for education for our kids and make sure they, you know, they're able to have good and enriching academic experience in schools. Mm -hmm. You know, and also for adults, you know, we can, uh, you know keep them productive in the in the workforce well thank you thank you doctor uh, it, it's <laughs> i love i love how you just i can uh, go on and on about I, this I, well listen this, this is you this is what you do i, I yeah. i'm enjoying it and i know we're coming to the end of the show but but i i just wanted to just you know uh touch just a comment mm -hmm. rather on on the, this vaccination piece uh, i think i think the issue is you mentioned like the vaccination may not prevent you from getting the disease i think that's a big thing that's been playing on on the right. resistance because we all think that when you get vaccinated there is no more disease and you'll be done because again we base it on history and other vaccinations we've received when we were younger right mm -hmm. uh, and so so i guess the model doesn't apply and so that's where it loses the the value at least the the, the trust factor on on the vaccine is not there I think also to your point, there's so much negative or unscientific or, and, and again, there's a debate about all that stuff on social media versus not social media, all these things. So th there was, there was also the, the history of how this whole progress from uh, a pandemic of two weeks and extended to two years. And, mm -hmm. and so, so that, I think there's a lot of factors that affected it, whereby the people have, you know, been divided because of that. Right. Because, because you're right. I mean, we know that most of the old vaccines, they were, tested over the years and we know the results because we all are here today <laughs> as, yeah. as you age you've you've gone through at least right, you know right. a, a few bunch of you know uh, vaccines when you're a kid right mm -hmm. and and this is like we have you know the flu shots uh, and we have all the other ones that 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 are seasonal that have been in place for years but i think there's two things the introduction of the mnr uh, the, the concept of a new type of vaccine i think that was one mm -hmm. uh, which is you know, for most people, they they realize that it's a new thing, although it wasn't new. I mean, it's been in, right. in, in, in trials and, and testing and in other type of situations. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that's one. And the other one is really the, just the fact that, you know, because the messaging was was kind of like off and it wasn't clear from day one and people are expecting, OK, well, we get the mask, we get the vaccine, this is gone. But then, you know, and, and should be, you know, the, the whole thing will be over with. But it wasn't. I think that's what caused more of the the uh, I guess the uh, divide in, in in the concept of vaccination versus no vaccination, mm -hmm. and I think people are getting closer to it now. They they understand it better. They see the results more, 
And yes, there are more variants, but you're right. I mean, when you compare uh, hospitalizations, you know, vaccine versus no vaccine, there's a big difference, you know, and there is, I, I've seen it personally in family where those that were vaccinated, you know, uh, and those that weren't, you know, they had uh, a milder, you know, uh, case versus the ones that weren't, and they really got impacted and got hospitalized. Right. hospitalized so so i've seen it live and I, i'm pretty sure and again people may be like well it's a it's a, you know you think the way you think that's okay and but again at the end of the day everybody's gonna have to make their decisions and uh this is not gonna go away <laughs> unless right. you know unless we all kind of you know contribute to it that's all exactly exactly you know and uh, that's really the ultimate goal we can put an end to this if there's a concerted effort if, if everybody pitches in and they do their fair share and they get vaccinated you know, and uh, adopt healthy practices like good hand hygiene, mask wearing, avoiding congregations and being mindful of situations. And, you know, the, yes, there's pandemic fatigue that has set in, but the virus is not fatigued. <laughs> it's the people that are getting tired of the virus, but the virus is not tired of, you know, what's going on and it's propagating, you know, so we, we should ultimately we should put an end to this by pitching in and doing what's right. Well, in the yeah, I, things right. Thank you. Again, I mean, a lot of people are doing this and they're working towards it. There's a lot of effort out there. But again, like I said, there's always the skeptics and there's always the different theories. Plus, it, it got a little bit of politicized over the last couple of years because yeah. it started in, in the middle of a campaign. And right. Right. Uh, so there was there's more to this than just, you know, um, pure medicine. And, and there's also the pharma. There's also the profits. There's this, that. And so there's all kind of and it's global and it's it just. Uh, some people question well, how is this different from previous, you know, uh, you know, pandemics or epidemics, whatever you call them, because I mean, right. again, it is COVID SARS, which was, you know, a few years back, and it's it's a cousin of the MERS, and so they're they're the same kind of you know concept. So people are questioning like why then and why now not then and uh, what's so different. So these are the things that actually trouble people. And I think that's why the the decisions are harder now. And then you have also the adverse react, uh, reactions that have been reported to VARS. And I think that's the other part, and, and people don't talk about it, but from, from a statistic, when you compare those cases versus the, the millions of people who have received it and not have any issues, uh, that's one. And then also some people are, are skeptical about, well, today we get it, but what's the outcome five, 10 years from now? What's this thing's going to do to my body? And those are some of the things. And why is it only six months and we have to get a booster and how many boosters are we going to get? So I think these are the questions that people still are playing with. And until right. there's better clarity on these things, we will still have a divide. And I hope that eventually we'll get rid of all those uh, questions and, and innocent questions rather. And, and hopefully we come to an agreement that this is the best and the better thing for all the world. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Time will tell, you know, we are still waiting for outcomes data, you know, from uh, all the people who have been vaccinated. And to your point, all those adverse effects that have been reported so far, they're being closely reviewed by FDA. And when we make recommendations to our patients, we try to educate them about all of the possible risk, um, you know, uh, or adverse effects that are associated with the vaccines, uh, in addition to counseling them about the benefits of vaccination. So, you know, time will tell. You know, uh, we'll, we'll find uh, out new things from uh, ongoing uh, data gathering process, you know, uh, from vaccinating people. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll achieve better outcomes for our communities. Thank you. I just wanted to just add mm -hmm. one more thing. I, I know there is there is a uh, an unfortunate stat, you know, uh, piece of, 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 of information that that may affect why people actually get the adverse reaction. And I think sometimes 
you know, people don't tell everything. They don't tell the story when they go and get the shots. And so uh, there are people who have had different shots, different things, medications and other things that they may not have shared at the time of taking the, the, the shot or the, the vaccination. Therefore, it can contribute to, to an adverse reaction. Uh, so, so I, you know, I think the message is really to be clear when you're when you ask the right questions, answer the questions correctly to make sure that if it's not the right time, do not take the vaccination. If you have anything else that can, you know, pretty much work adversely with it. Uh, and again, I'm not, I'm not the clinician here. <laughs> so, right. so, so I, I'd like your opinion on that piece because, because I think like everything else, if the, the patient doesn't give you everything, mm -hmm. uh, you will go based on whatever they tell you. And sometimes they may not give you the full picture. Right. Uh, and, and that goes, you know, uh, right for the vaccination as well, I think. Yeah, it's very important for patients to uh, communicate with their providers about their allergy history. Yes. You know, it's really critical to know what they're allergic to. Um, some people have histories of life-threatening allergies like anaphylaxis and angioedema, which are more, you know, serious allergic reactions. You know, so we definitely recommend caution, you know, when we recommend COVID vaccines for those people they need to receive the vaccine in supervised settings. Like if EpiPen is recommended for someone, you know, uh, basically they, it, the, the vaccine needs to be given in a supervised setting and they should be observed for a good amount of time after they receive the vaccine to see if they develop any life-threatening allergic reaction. And if so, we should be prepared to give them EpiPen if needed or if indicated, you know, things like that. And we need to know what underlying problems they have. Do they have any, you know, immunocompromising conditions? You know, do they have any history of cancers? Are they taking any medications that can suppress their immune systems? Things like that. All of those things um, are things to be discussed, you know, with providers. Um, you know, the patients need to understand that. And a lot of the adverse effects that uh, we've come across, you know, like be it Injection site reactions like swelling, pain, fever, chills, you know, uh, flu-like symptoms, whatnot. Uh, so all of those typically happen due to um, an inflammatory process that happens in the body. After patients receive the vaccine, the immune system is put to work. And, you know, when the immune cells are developing antibodies against other components, uh, basically it can elicit an inflammatory response or an immune reaction which is typically what causes most of these uh, adverse effects that people experience. And vast majority of patients, it's, it's relatively mild and these symptoms usually get better on their own within like you know four to five days. Sometimes it may go on for up to a week, but all of those symptoms are usually self-resolving, meaning they get better on their own. So that's something that you know, listeners need to understand. And for some patients, yet yes, it may take a little longer to get better. And I've heard that patients uh, reported having more adverse effects after they got the second second dose, you know, com compared to the first. Because the first dose is what we call a sensitizing dose. It, it kind of, you know, throw those components to the immune system. And the second dose is really what triggers those immune cells to make more and more antibodies. You know, so when that happens, it can cause more of an immune reaction. And that in turn may cause more pronounced adverse effects. Even those are relatively self-resolving for a vast majority of patients, you know, with simple supportive measures like drinking adequate fluids or taking Tylenol or Motrin as needed if they develop any body aches or fever, whatever the case may be, you know, often helps uh, take care of those adverse effects and they get better on their own. 
you know, it's really rare for patients to have, you know, like life-threatening adverse effects. Like I said, people who have pre-existing allergies, if they've had anaphylactic reactions or life-threatening allergic reactions in the past, they need to be careful, uh, you know, before they can get the vaccine or if it, you know, if it's deemed not safe for them to get it, they should definitely discuss with their uh, primary care providers or allergies, the case may be. Um, and even, you know, if, if patients have had an anaphylactic reaction in the past does not mean they cannot get the vaccine. It just means that the vaccine should be administered in a supervised setting where there are capabilities to resuscitate them or give EpiPen, you know, depending on, depending on what kind of reactions they develop. Well, thank you, doctor, for, for I mean, the, the subject of immunization and, and COVID, we can talk about broad. <laughs> there's, there's broad. a lot, there, there's a lot right. to it. And uh, right. So, I mean, I know we've, you know, your time is valuable and I, I really took <laughs> a little bit more of your chunk here, but, but so, so I just do. My to, pleasure. To, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the time here and, and your patience. So, so I just want to uh, uh, just close the show with, with a quick question, which is about your services. I know uh, you have your settings, you know, local uh, in Rhode Island, but uh, do you, now with telehealth and telemedicine, do you mm -hmm. actually expand your services across and uh, uh, different states and different, you know, uh, communities, or it's you still are within the same, uh, I guess, community or the area that you service? So we service in uh, Rhode Island mainly, and, you know, our office is located in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. We provide uh, full spectrum family medicine, full spectrum primary care, like what we discussed early on. Um, we do offer telehealth uh, visits, you know, for patients who, um, you know, are not able to come in either because they got exposed to someone or if it's a relatively simple, straightforward problem that they can discuss over the phone and get the help that they need. So we do offer telehealth appointments. We do video visits too sometimes. You know, if someone has a rash, simple rash that they need to, you know, discuss with the doctor, you know, we do video visits. It's like a FaceTime call, but it's more HIPAA compliant and HIPAA secure platform that mm -hmm. we use to make it safe and secure for patients. And, you know, oftentimes that is helpful to diagnose a simple rash, but, you know, if something's, um, you know, not clearly visible on, on the phone because of resolution issues, we have them come into the office to be seen. Uh, but yeah, our, we service, you know, mainly Rhode Island, we have some patients coming in from neighboring states too, like Massachusetts, uh, mainly in Connecticut, you know, um, but yeah, that's, that, that's the population we <laughs> take care of. Well, there's, 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 there's a few million <laughs> folks that are around the area, so they can all benefit from it. Again, I, I, the reason I ask is that, you know, I just want to extend that opportunity to, if you are open to other places, people can still reach out to you guys. And if not, I mean, the local ones, uh, we want to promote this and make sure that they, they know about the services and your contributions and uh, that you're there to help them, you know, get, you know, healthier and stay healthier. And that's it. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, well, listen, it's, it's my pleasure. And, and so, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I mean, you've given a lot of deep insights here and, 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 and probably clarified more about primary care than, than most people would possibly think. <laughs> you know, there, there, there was a lot more to it than, than, than the three, you know, uh, uh, letters in the acronym here. <laughs> uh, so, it, 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 it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to come on your podcast and talk about these really important topics. And I feel like the listeners should 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 understand what these different components are and you know they they, they should i definitely encourage them to 
established care with a good primary care physician. That way they get uh, the right care that they need and you know, we can prevent negative outcomes for them. It's really the ultimate goal for all of this, you know, and I, I really thank you for giving me a chance to, to, to spread this message to your audience. Well, listen, this message is going to go literally worldwide. I mean, it's not just local, but I mean, uh, you know, there are a few folks that are watching these, these, you know, internationally and stuff. And I think that the message and the information is valuable across the globe because this is the same for everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're human and you, and you care about your health. <laughs> Preventative care should be your, your main thing. And uh, I think now we've taught people what that means and, and hopefully they can seek a similar, you know, uh, provider close by and, and, and get the, the right outcome. And maybe we can prevent people from not going to ERs and, and, and really just live right. a happy life. That's it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, doctor, thank you so much for being with us, folks. Thank My you. My pleasure. For, you're welcome. Uh, so, so folks, thank you for uh, watching and listening on, on, on a health radio here. And, uh, you know, we'll just be talking soon, uh, different guests, different show, different topic. Ciao for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.